You're listening to Good Shepherd Brentwood's Sermon Feed. Today's sermon was preached by Father Fred Schmidt and recorded on the 12th Sunday after Pentecost, August 20th, 2023. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always and everywhere acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. You may want to open your bulletins to the Old Testament reading. I confess, almost any movie or television show featuring the mountains of Montana automatically has my attention. So Taylor Sheridan's Yellowstone was an easy sell for me. For those of you who have missed it, Yellowstone is an American neo-Western drama following the fortunes of the Dutton family, the Yellowstone Ranch, which they own, the adjacent Black Rock or Broken Rock Reservation, and a particularly malicious, money-hungry succession of land developers. There isn't a single character in the entire story that isn't, well, complicated. John Dutton is the patriarch of the family. Between Dutton and his ranch hand, Rip Wheeler, there is more than enough skullduggery. But for many viewers, the character that is surfaced more forcibly than anyone else is John's daughter, Beth, a cutthroat businesswoman who is not adverse to destroying companies, careers, and people, fiercely loyal, protective of her father, and determined to protect his ranch at all costs, even though she herself has no interest in ranch life at all. Hence, the meme on social media and t-shirts, don't make me go all best on you. And my variation this morning on the Old Testament, don't make me go all Rachel on you, which is the title of my sermon. Rachel may not have Beth's M.O., she is certainly one of Scripture's forceful figures, and she is nothing if not fiercely loyal to her children, protective of her place as Jacob's wife, and determined to ensure that she and Jacob have children who will secure the future of their family. As Mother Natalie noted last week, thanks to Rachel's father Laban, achieving those goals was never going to be an easy thing to do. As the story goes, Jacob worked for Laban for seven years in order to take Rachel as his wife, and when the time came, Laban insisted that he take Rachel's older sister first. So Jacob ended up working another seven years in order to marry Rachel. Did Jacob think that he could pull one over on Laban? Did love blind Jacob to tradition that Leah needed to be married first 
Or did Laban trick Jacob by suggesting that he would marry off Leah or ignore the requirement that the older daughter be married first? The text doesn't say. And ancient rabbis struggled with what actually happened. Some even suggested that Rachel told Jacob the trickster that he would never outsmart her father. Something that all future son-in-laws should take to heart. And that Rachel and Jacob worked out a series of secrets that would let Jacob know that it was her, even in the dark on their wedding night. The same rabbis went on to suggest that when the time came, Rachel couldn't bring herself to shame her older sister, so she told Laban, or she told Leah what the signals were, which is why Jacob did not know who he was married to until the following morning. Son if that's the case, and the rabbi's explanation seems as good as any other, then Jacob the trickster met his match not only in Laban, but Rachel as well. As Natalie said, what goes around comes around. Whatever the case, it's this dynamic that set the stage for the events in the first part of chapter 30 of Genesis. Since Jacob married Leah first, she inevitably had children long before Rachel did. And whether she had facilitated Leah's marriage to Jacob or not, the fact that she had children before Rachel did was a sore spot. And the text in your bulletin today is explicit. When Rachel saw Jacob, no children, she envied her sister. The Hebrew behind the English is telling. The form of the verb envied requires an object, and Leah is squarely in Rachel's sights. We all fall into the habit of thinking that spiritual peril is in a class all of its own. Until the decade of the 1970s, in fact, there was very little candid conversation about how our emotions and our relationships undermine our spiritual lives. But they do. And because we are all one thing, body, mind, emotions, and spirit, what we give ourselves to emotionally has incredible power to completely subvert well-being in every way imaginable. And so it is with envy. But of course, we didn't discover that fact in the 20th century. We lost track of what the ancient fathers and mothers of the church already knew. Cyprian of Carthage wrote early in the third century, whoever you are who are envious, observe how crafty mischievous and hateful you are to those that you envy. Yet you are the enemy of no one's well-being more than your own. Wherever you may be, your adversary is in your own breast. Your mischief is shut up within you. You are tied and bound 
by the chains of jealousy. Dominated by envy, Rachel cries out to Jacob, not to God, give me children or I will die. And Jacob instantly identifies the problem with Rachel's appeal. She has effectively prayed for something that no human being, even the people that love her most, can accomplish. And Jacob replies, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? Walking with Rachel through the dark night of her soul, it is worth pausing long enough to note that there is another lesson here for us. There are challenges in life that no other human being can address, touching our sense of self-worth, the experience of grief, the anguish that comes with disappointment. And when we burden our spouses with the task of solving those problems for us, we burden them and our relationship. The grief can be literally unbearable. It is one thing to walk with another person, to hear their sorrow, to do what we can comfort them along the way. But for our own spiritual and emotional well-being and for the well-being of our relationships, it is important to realize that some problems only God can address. Recognizing that fact and giving God time to heal us is the only thing that can sometimes give God the room to act. Of course, Rachel doesn't do that. She not only begs Jacob to give her something he cannot give her, but then instead of waiting on God, she engineers her own solution to the problem. And she tells Jacob, here is my maid, Bilba. Sleep with her, and she will have my baby. Predictably, this scheme only sharpens Leah's own sense of jealousy. And when Bilba has not only had just one but two children with Jacob, Leah, out of her own hurt and envy, responds in kind. And she gives her maid, Zilpah, to Jacob, who has still another child. But Rachel, being a lot like Beth, isn't done scheming to solve her own problem. And she negotiates with Leah to obtain fruit or mandrakes that one of Leah's sons has harvested, thinking that that will address her infertility. In, in exchange, she allows Leah to sleep with Jacob again, and to make matters worse, Leah has two more sons and a daughter. By this point, Yellowstone begins to look tame. Through it all, the story is one of envy and conflict. Both sets of children are given names that echo the conflict. The daughter is born, who seems like almost an afterthought. And then, when we have almost forgotten that Rachel's original plea to Jacob must have sounded like a prayer to God, Rachel conceives. 
As Genesis notes, then God remembered Rachel and God heeded her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and Rachel said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph. What are we to make of this chapter of Rachel's story? As one of my friends notes, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. But an even better rendering of a bit of wisdom might be this. If you want to make God laugh, tell him you are doing all the planning. One of the most powerful features of the book of Genesis is the way that certain themes appear again and again. And in the story of Rachel, Leah, and Jacob, we are confronted with the truths that underlined the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Like them, we are already made in God's image. But too often, we act like we are God. We act like we know better and that we can do better. So when we hatch our schemes for doing what we think God should do, and when God should do it, then things go sideways. Misery ensues, conflict grows, we blame one another, and we hurt one another. But in spite of our choices, the message of the passage is, is that God will do what only God can do. Ironically, the children that Rachel, Leah, and all their servants have will end up being the patriarchs and the heads of the tribes of Israel. And God's promise to bring healing to humankind will be worked out first through them and through Jesus through the family history that stretches back to them. Could that history have unfurled differently? Of course it could. Could it have been marked by less deceit and conflict? Absolutely. Those dynamics are entirely the work of broken people, and the message of Genesis is that our desire to be our own gods is in one way or another at the heart of almost everything that makes us miserable. If there is a fundamental difference between Yellowstone and the story of Rachel, Jacob, and Leah, it is that in Yellowstone, God is absent from the story. And in the Old Testament, he is not. Beth works in a moral vacuum where the future that she fiercely protects can never end in anything but another cycle of violence. By contrast, on the other side of Rachel's scheming is the work of God, which transcends both what she can imagine and what she can accomplish. And the good that God does is not thanks to Rachel, but to the triumph of God's grace over what she does. The message of Genesis to us is not, here is a perfect woman, follow her, go all Rachel on life. The message is, here is a woman driven by passions and goals that take her from God's will, only to end up witnessing 
to the goodness and the grace of God. We can take the long and painful journey that she did to discover that truth, or we can embrace it from the place we find ourselves this day. Let us pray. Gracious God, we confess that all too often we lack the patience and the trust necessary to wait on you. And we make our lives miserable with the substitutes that we offer for the control that we assert over our lives. Help us to listen, help us to wait, and help us to trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in hearing our sermons in real time, you can check us out at our website, www.goodshepherdbrentwood.org, or attend online during our 1015 Sunday live stream on YouTube. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Good Shepherd Brentwood. If you have any questions or comments, or maybe you'd like to meet with one of our clergy, you can email us at office at goodshepherdbrentwood.org. Or if you're interested in visiting in person or have questions about our programs and services, you can text 615-637-3738 where you'll be contacted by our staff. We'd love to meet you.